Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 25th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is why give a damn about strangers. With me is Michael E. McCullough. He is the author of The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. The publisher is Basic Books. Michael is a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego, where he directs the Evolution and Human Behavior Laboratory. Long interested in pro-social behavior and morality, he has conducted research on forgiveness, revenge, gratitude, empathy, altruism, and religion. His other books include Beyond Revenge, The Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me, Dan. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Let's start with the title. Uh, I am someone with a PhD in English, so I'm well aware that The Kindness of Strangers comes from uh, a famous play by Tennessee Williams, A Streetcar Named Desire, where Blanche Dubois says to a doctor, whoever you are, I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. I'm assuming that's where the title comes from. Is that true? And what does that tell us? Why did you choose that that title for the book. Yes, of course. I mean, it's certainly just a, a, a it, it's a, it's a term that's in circulation in the, you know, in the, in the sort of general uh, public. And uh, it struck me as one that would get people's attention to the very core of the book. Uh, in fact, it was sort of sitting there, um, you know, un, unloved and unattended to as a possible title. And it wasn't until sort of the 11th hour that um, uh, my publisher and I realized like, no one's ever done this before. It's perfect for a book uh, on this topic. So it, in the end, Dan, it was just sort of irresistible. We couldn't not use it. Okay. Now, Blanche Dubois, of course, is famously, you know, given to, you know, episodes of uh, grandeur and self-deception. Does that play as a theme into the book, would you say? Uh, probably not. Um, we, you know, we're, what I'm trying to do in this book is really show how we came to take an interest in the welfare of strangers, where the kindness of strangers comes from. But, you know, now that I think about it, there is a way, (laughs) you know, there is a way in which self-deception is an important, you're right. (laughs) And the way that self-deception turns out to be important is we think of ourselves naturally um, sort of as a, product of evolution, more interested and more engaged in the problems of strangers than, than we actually are. So what we're self-deceived about is the extent to which we sort of naturally, as being members of a species called Homo sapiens, are built to take an interest in the welfare of strangers. So you're quite right. 
Okay, fair enough. There is also a movie, you may not know this, but there's a movie, I think it might have been a European film uh, with that title that came out in 2019. So I know of no books with the title, but there there is a fairly recent movie uh, out there. You may want to check it out at some point. I have no idea whether it's a good movie or a bad movie. Uh, moving on to something that's definitely good, there's a wonderfully strong endorsement for your book from Paul Bloom. Uh, he says, quote unquote, this is a controversial book but McCullough's arguments are smart, clear, and ultimately persuasive. So I'm interested in here on two fronts. One, what is the controversy that you believe Paul Bloom is alluding to? And why do you imagine, maybe you've had a conversation with him since, but why does Paul Bloom say he was ultimately won over? What are the arguments he's alluding to in that promotional blurb? The main feature of the book that's going to be controversial uh, and and actually has been controversial so far is that evolution did not outfit us to take an interest in the well-being of strangers. And the reason that's controversial, at least to scientists, is over the past couple of decades, we've uh, seen a lot of evolutionary scientists from both the social sciences and from biology um, try to explain why we do things like give to UNICEF or tip waiters or waitresses in restaurants in, when we go to co- conferences and we'll never see them again? Or why do we give money to charities or you know, give money to someone we might pass on the street who's obviously struggling? And their answer has always been, well, we've got these evolved features of the human mind that evolved when we were on the savanna, you know, tr- uh, interacting with other people, and these mechanisms motivate us to care. They, they cause us, uh, you know, first and foremost, to care for our loved ones, our genetic relatives, our brothers and sisters, and our children, and our second cousins, and all that. Um, and we have a lot of work from evolutionary biology showing that sentiments like that can evolve through natural selection. And then we have these mechanisms that probably evolved to promote care and concern for um, our friends, and they operate, they, they evolved, the theorists tell us, because if you can provide a benefit to somebody who, in, in your, you know, in your community, uh, who really needs it, and that person is going to be in a position to repay you in the future when you, when the shoe's on the other foot, that's an, a sentiment that can evolve by natural selection as well. So we've got, and that's called reciprocity. So, so sitting there in the journals and in the uh, of evolutionary biology and evolutionary science and in the minds of evolutionary biologists and evolutionary scientists uh, is the idea that these kinds of mechanisms that evolved to motivate us to care for our friends and, and, and family are also doing that work in the modern world. They're motivating us to, to take an interest in the welfare of complete strangers, kind of as a you know, we're, they're sort of being put to use to do something they really didn't evolve to do, which is fine because that happens all the time. We, we have a, an old mind, a stone-aged mind that's still, do, you know, it's doing things like playing tennis and doing math, also things that they, they did not, you know, the human mind didn't evolve to do. My problem with that is I don't think those kind of evolved cognitive mechanisms are actually capable of doing that kind of work. Uh, those those mechanisms for concern, um, I don't believe, are actually doing those are capable of doing those jobs of motivating us 
to do the kinds of charitable or philanthropic uh, activities that we engage in both as individuals and societies. So I wanted to explain it using a very different set of explanatory equipment, if you will. I think there's a lot of other psychology that's really doing the work that we're, you know, that I'm interested in explaining. Okay. I, I want to go a couple of different places with what you just said. One is speaking of evolutionary biology. I recently had on the show uh, Rory Sutherland, and in his book at one point, he quotes the evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers as suggesting that you know, short-term self-interest operates differently, but long-term self-interest uh, in many ways leads to behaviors that are undistinguishable from mutually beneficial cooperation. Would you tend to agree with that conclusion? Largely, somewhat, not at all. Kind of, kind of. Where do you fall? Yeah, Trivers is, has been so important to uh, those of us who want to take evolution seriously when we think about so human social behavior. And his point is so important, which is that if I have a relationship with you in which I provide a benefit to you today at some cost to me, you know, it could be anything. I'm going to loan you money or I'm going to, you know, uh, take time out of my weekend to help you move, move house. Um, there's a sense in which from the viewpoint, you know, from the view from nowhere, you know, the, from the God's eye view of, of what's happened with respect to uh, our fitnesses, my fitness is lower because I've put this time and money into you and your fitness is higher because you've received those benefits from me. So Trivers looks at that and says, aha, this is, this is a problem, uh, an evolutionary problem. Natural selection doesn't like when we pay costs in order to benefit others. Um, but what he points out is that's not actually how natural selection does its accounting. It does its accounting at the end of your life. And it says, did your behaviors raise your lifetime fitness or did they lower it? And if in a world where reciprocity is a possibility, where my helping you move today at you know, some cost to me and some benefit to you motivates you to, to make a memory of that and then help me again, help me in the future when the shoe is on the other foot, then my cheap, relatively cheap helping of you today at a great benefit to you can be repaid to me as a really valuable benefit to me at you know some cheaper cost to you, and we're all better off. Um, I've I've bought uh, low and so you know I've uh, bought low and sold high as it is as it were. So reciprocity can involve when you uh, can evolve, and it does so by thinking about the lifetime reproductive benefits or fitness benefits of our behaviors. Okay, so in business terms, you already offered one analogy. I might make another one, which is, you know, as opposed to monthly sales figures, you're talking about the annual report or the decade report or the lifetime report. Um, you mentioned, and I want to be able to give you time to go in depth here because I think it's so central to your book. You talked about four evolved human instincts uh, without getting too far in the weeds, but also giving you a chance to give a substantive answer here. Can you walk us through those four evolved instincts just to make sure the listener is clued into what you, you mean there? Sure, sure. And this is where the book, uh, the, the message of the kindness of strangers gets controversial. Um, I want to explain our concern for strangers and, you know, people on the other side of the planet, people we'll never meet again, people we, we know are out there perhaps, but we'll never even meet or know the names of. Um, not in terms of these, primarily in terms of this evolved equipment for caring for friends and family. I do think those have a limited importance. Reciprocity has a limited importance. And also our concern for reputation has a limited importance. 
So uh, that's an evolved instinct for concern for others that's, that's worth dwelling on for a minute. So there's reciprocity. I help you on the prospect that in the future you're going to help me and my end of the year, end of year report is going to you know, be better for it. Um, but we also are moral creatures. We're creatures that look at each other and make moral judgments of each other. So I might look at your behavior or you at mine, and you're going to make judgments about how I treat other people. You'll make, you'll make assessments of me. And based on how I treat others, am I magnanimous? Am I cruel? Am I stingy? Um, am I generous? Do I care about others? Um, you're going to form an estimate of, of, what, of how good of a guy I am. And those, those appraisals of my morality, of my moral worth, are going to change your behavior. So you're just a bystander seeing how I treat others. But because you're going to form moral judgments of me, that's going to shape your behavior toward me in the future. So we've evolved to really care about our reputations. We want to seem like dispassionate, fair, just, magnanimous creatures because um, that's the kind of person other people want to be around. So you can attract the benefits of having a, good, a large cloud of friends and people who care about you because of how you treat people in those one-to-one -one relationships that they learn about. So reciprocity and reputation have this limited role, I think. Um, we, because we care about seeming like decent people, you can see through history, through you know, the long arc of history, that, that leaders and thinkers and even individual people have taken, have done things to take an interest that, that help strangers because they are trying to burnish their reputations as decent people. So those are, that's some of, that's, those are two of the instincts. Um, the, the final two, and I think this is really where the meat of, you know, you know uh, the, the, the major heavy lifting has been done uh, in generating the multilateral international organizations that we use to try to eradicate poverty and even, you know, the organizations domestically that we count on to, to help people in need. Um, I have, they have been more driven by these final two. One okay. is... One is our, um, very simply, we're, we are interest, we, we're capable of tracking our incentives, figuring out what's good for us and what's bad for us, both as individuals and as societies. And then, and poverty is one of those things that we have to decide whether it's good or bad for us as a society. And then fourth, we're capable of reasoning. We're capable of looking at problems we have and working together to find reasonable solutions to those problems. So that's key, fo following our incentives and uh, the capacity for reasoning. And I think that's actually what's new and controversial. Okay, I, I thank you very much for that. I think that's an essential building block for the back half of this conversation. I want to say with one more question, kind of having to do with evolution and natural selection, and then I do want to start moving through, uh, you know, a historical progression here. Uh, you have a, a intriguing comment, nicely stated at one point. You say natural selection is a penny pincher. So if you maybe you've already covered much of this, but if you haven't, I'm interested in how empathy and compassion works when it doesn't work, and particularly given the the reference to penny pinching, what the costs are that are involved with both of these. Absolutely. And I, I, I alluded that a little bit earlier when I said that natural selection sort of reckons our fitness at the end of our lives. But there's no free lunch, uh, classic economic principle, and, and natural selection is an economist. Um, the way that organisms evolve, 
um, is through out reproducing, having design features, features of their bodies, and in our case, our brains, that promote their fitness, which is um, the number essentially of copies of you, or more precisely, the, the copies of genes in you, by increasing their numbers in the world. So when we think about the resources that we convert into reproductive success or fitness, that's everything. That's arms, that's legs, that's eyes, that's our behaviors. And natural selection from sort of this God's eye view says at the end of your life, how many offspring did you have? Or um, how, you know, how many offspring did your relatives have? They're likely to have some of those genes in them as well. And it's in a sense going to reward features of your body and your brains that are correlated with your reproductive success. And it's through this process of a links between traits and fitness that natural selection over long, 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 long spans of time, eons, crafts traits by virtue of how they increase our fitness. And all along the way, so and natural selection is able to detect really small differences in huge populations over large periods of time in fitness. And it's keeping those features, those genetically built features of, of physiology and psychology that are good at generating copies. And it tends to shuffle off or make lower in frequency those design features that are worse at um, creating reproductive success. So it's, that's the sense in which it really is a, pin, a penny pincher. Okay. So now as I advertise, I wanted to uh, move kind of to the historical progressions that were. Uh, we're both fans, I know, from our previous conversation about Yaroslav Pelikan's book, Jesus Through the Centuries, which looks at how each age created Jesus in his own image. In this case, I'd like you to talk about what's the historical progression of empathy, compassion, reciprocity, choose whatever term you want. But you mentioned seven hinges of history. Uh, again, this might take a little bit to explain, but I'd like to, to, to give us at least some top line sense of what you're talking about here. Sure. What I'm trying to do in really the, the bulk of the book, the meat of the book, I think, is explain how we went from a species that really didn't have any concern for perfect strangers. We really, our minds didn't even know what perfect strangers were, except as things to be fearful of and hostile toward, to a point where we are today, which is we really think long and hard about what we can be doing individually and corporately in uh, the poorest nations, in the least developed nations, to try to raise their self-sufficiency and raise their standards of living. So how do we get from here to there? Um, I try to identify seven different eons in the book where I think there were major revolutions. The first was when we moved into cities. Um, for the first time, we are confronted with true strangers. These are not people we want to kill, uh, but they are people, nevertheless, in our communities that we don't know. They're, uh, they're, they're clear on the other side of town. We know they're out there. They're begging. They are widows and orphans who are losing their property and their farms and their, their ways of living. And they become vulnerable to exploitation by the, the wealthy and fortunate. It's, it's a, there's a massive level of societal inequality in those early cities um, that, you know, actually some of the m most unequal societies we've ever had. So we came up with solutions. The leaders in those societies came up with solutions to try to protect the vulnerable from exploitation. So that's that first eon, that first, okay. that first hinge of history. I see a second hinge of history 
1,500 years later, um, in um, uh, um, uh, Indus River, uh, India, uh, the Indus River civilization, the Yellow River civilization in, in what's China now, Israel, classical Greece, in, a, in a, an era called the Ax that scholars call the Axial Age. It's the it's the time when all of these major world religions and major worldviews came into being. We see the golden rule emerge in all of these societies, and that becomes a really powerful principle for the first time ever. It just can, you know, it, it it evolves convergently in all of these places, seemingly within just a couple centuries of each other, um, and this becomes a a powerful principle that we use. As uh, to govern our morality and our thinking about what's right and wrong. For the first time ever, also, we see re a religious worldview or spiritual worldviews being linked to compassion for others. Prior to that, being a good religious person or being on God's side had nothing to do with how you treat strangers. That wasn't part of the dialogue at all, but it becomes so in the Axial Age. So, so the Bronze Age gave us the golden rule. Now, yeah. I'm just being, yeah, being well, facetious, facetious a little bit. So yeah, let's we'll, we'll hold awesome. off. On the, we'll hold off on the last one, the seventh one. But you got four more here. What what would those be? We go to classical Europe, um, when about sixty cities in just a few decades are trying to figure out how they should respond to the poverty that's showing up at the city gates. That's driven by uh, epidemic. That's driven by um, the collapse of the labor market. Um, the collapse of uh, in, um, agriculture, and um, a lot of wars that ended and left unemployed veterans trying to find something to do to make a living. In about 60 different cities in a couple of decades, we see a really important innovation, which is the cities themselves arrogate for themselves, take for themselves the rights to um, develop and then administer citywide secular plans that are comprehensive and that are designed to deal with poverty and its second order of, uh, effects. These are the first efforts to figure out what people need um, in terms of sort of social work interventions, education, healthcare, uh, in order to be raised to being able-bodied again. Powerful change where we, you know, it sounds incredibly modern, really. How should we- Yes, it does. You know, it's, and it's been sitting there in history for 500 years. Um, we're still we're still talking about this issue today, and I I always think to myself when I hear debates about whether we should you know whether charity should be an individual initiative or a corporate activity, I I always think let's we settled this 500 years ago, um, but that's an important stop. Classical Europe, 1500s, 1600s. From there, I want to find two other eras in Europe. One is the um, is the genesis of the welfare state. Um, toward the end of the 1800s, again, convergently, most of, the, um, most of the nations of Europe realized, Western Europe realized, we can make our people better off um, by putting into place safety nets that shield them from loss of, uh, loss of income due to disability or old age or infirmity. Um, and this leads in, in each of the, you know, sort of 20 societies really quickly to national plans for these kinds of social insurances. And we just see that idea that the government could take an interest and perhaps should, from an ethical point of view, take an interest in keeping people, uh, keep uh, creating a standard of living and well-being um, that they're capable of as they become richer. 
round about the same time, you see kind of an analog to this sort of within nation process of trying to prop up people to prevent them from you know, falling into destitution, but applied to relationships between nations. And I call this the humanitarian Big Bang. Um, it, this is a term I get from a, a, um, a political scientist named Michael Barnett. But here's where we see for the first time ever nations thinking of themselves as having duties to each other to try to help them during humanitarian disasters, uh, to help them recover from devastating wars. Um, and so this is happening both corporately um, as, as nations sort of developing notion that they have rights and obligations. And you also see the dawn of the international humanitarian movement. The Red Sure. Co- and this is when you mentioned the uh, Lisbon earthquake, I believe. That's right. A uh, powerful worldview changing earthquake uh, in uh, Lisbon, Portugal in 1755. A devastating, devastating um, uh, earthquake, tsunamis and fires that leveled. Um, leveled Lisbon, and it left um, the leaders of Europe trying to figure out what it means f- for them and their their religious worldviews and their views on how they should treat each other as nations. Um, and and it, that is really the beginning of that humanitarian Big Bang. We also see for the first time ever individual groups of people across nations developing common interests in solving particular social problems. Prior to the late 1700s, it was illegal in every country for people to form voluntary associations. Like the Red Cross, illegal. Um, you know, PETA, illegal. Following World War II, the uh, allied countries with the United States and Great Britain at the vanguard were really concerned about the creep of totalitarian, totalitarian regimes and particularly communism. Um, having won the war, they asked... How can we prevent the third one? And the conclusion that they came to, both Roosevelt and Churchill, was we need to protect the world's poorest societies from being poor or even poorer because that's what makes a a country vulnerable to the blandishments and promises of totalitarian dictators. So there was a clear interest in intervening in the world's poorest countries, helping them develop and being self-sufficient as a way of encouraging democracy. The belief was a, a healthy, happy, prosperous country is a country that's, that welcomes democracy rather than dictatorship. And then finally, we get to the 21st century. And I think there's a really nice red line you can draw between the 20th and the 21st, where we begin to uh, see, the, see the institutions and organizations that emerged during the second half of the 20th century many of them through the United Nations, um, but not exclusively, um, in the 21st century being subjected to really rigorous efforts to evaluate them, to figure out why, and this is also domestically true as well, um, taking time to use the best economics we've got, the best social science, the best hard data we can get to truly figure out, okay, which of these programs or these undertakings are really going to make a difference in people's lives in a way that justifies the costs we're going to spend on them? And which of them should we throw in the garbage can because they don't work, they're not effective, or they cost more than they actually recover in terms of human life and human welfare? So when you call it the age of impact, what you really mean is, are these efforts having an impact? That's what you mean by that title? Precisely. Um, Okay. We're we're using, and and I think this does kind of represent 
a, an, a, a kind of apex because people have always had in the backs of their minds either an optimism or a pessimism about their individual efforts or their cor- our corporate efforts to make the world a better place because that's the point of costs. It's costly to do these things. So you, we always want to know if we're getting a payoff. Uh, is there going to be a benefit? But we didn't really have the data or the tools for analyzing that data to look at these sorts of um, interventions and their effects until really recently. It wasn't until um, around 2000 that we had data from the United Nations that allowed us to evaluate whether um, their, um, their goals for development in the developing world actually were leading to payoffs. We didn't know if malaria treatments uh, reduced uh, death. We didn't know whether interventions to promote child well-being or maternal well-being were leading to reduced infant mortality or maternal mortality. We just didn't have the data. But now we do, and we can get those data regularly. And we're able to see which of these projects works, which of these projects in the developing world work. And also domestically, we have at our disposal, although we don't use them necessarily uh, often enough, uh, the tools to help us figure out which of these things we're throwing money at um, to try to solve problems are actually doing the work we hope they're going to do. Um, which it, you know, what can you do in the lives of children or young adults or working moms um, or people with disabilities that are truly going to make them better off in a way that justifies the expense that we're going to undertake in order to implement them? We have those data, we have the tools, and increasingly, uh, experts in economics and social science are putting those tools to use to help us figure out what works and doesn't. And it's really just down to, at this point, to politicians and policymakers to to make use of those insights to generate more effective um, approaches to making society better. Sure. So what I'm, I'm really hearing is efficacy. And I, I was thinking about a documentary I watched not long ago about Bill Gates, who, of course, brought his computers and data and uh, is really rigorous in going through it. One last quick question here before we, we wrap up. Uh, how might social media play a role or doesn't it play a role here in this age of impact? Social media has a huge impact, uh, in, in part because you can't help people that you don't know about. Um, so we're able to get information about humanitarian crises, um, hurricanes on, you know, the hurricane that's approaching the Gulf Coast right now, as a matter of fact, we'll be able to get data in real time about where the biggest impacts are. And, and those, that, those data will come in faster than they can be reported by the professional press. Uh, w- likewise, the internet allows us to um, generate cash um, to pull on people's heartstrings and get them to make donations to charitable causes. Um, in, you know, in nanoseconds where getting that news out and getting the resources back from generous people would take weeks or months. So the speed has increased, you know, by orders of magnitude, thanks to social media. Okay, that's great. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for for being on the show today. Our time is about up. Uh, This has been episode number 25, Why Give a Damn About Strangers. My guest, Michael McCullough, his book, The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. To check out other episodes of this podcast, please visit my company's website at www.sensorylogic.com. 
If you got a follow-up question from Michael, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking about empathy, compassion, reciprocity, and so forth, I'll end with this quote from the German theologian Bonhoeffer, who said, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or admit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm-hmm.